verses 1 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, Five-day Bible study, have they gone out yet? They've gone. Okay, cool. That's good. Keep your Bibles open at Ephesians 4. That will be beneficial. <coughs> and Kitty. Hmm. There you are. Uh, I reckon once my sermon's done, it's time to go off to the town centre to swap shifts. I'll pray, and then we'll hook in to Ephesians 4. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for your word, the Bible. We thank you that it is true and that it is useful for teaching us and rebuking us and training us in righteousness. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you do that now. Help us to see this morning, Lord, the awesome gift it is that we have such diversity in our church. Help us realise that we all play a crucial part in the body of our church, that we all are very valuable and significant in this church, in Jesus' name. Amen. So God has us thinking about unity and diversity in the church this morning in His Word, the Bible. Um, I'm very deeply thankful for the unity that we've enjoyed at Gregor Hills Anglican the last five or so years. We've been very united. There's been no major conflicts or rifts or issues or anything like that in our church, and that is a blessing. Unity is... A wonderful blessing in the church. It's encouraging, it's heartening, it's constructive. Unity actually promotes maturity and also growth. When we're unified, we grow faster uh, as a church. Conversely, disunity is extraordinarily discouraging. As you know, disunity in any situation, in your family, in your workplace, in your team is uh, discouraging, it's disheartening and it can be very destructive 
in the church, it can cause people to break into warring tribes and people backslide in their Christian maturity. Some even become so hurt they walk away from the faith completely because of disunity in the church, which is a great tragedy. It seems unthinkable, I reckon, to many of you, that that kind of disunity could possibly happen in our church, that we could be so divided that people are hurt and people even walk away from their faith. seems impossible to some of you, and that's really good. For some of you, though, and for me, you know from experience that that kind of disunity can happen all too easily if we're not careful, if we become complacent. I've been a member of a church, not ours, not Harrington Park Anglican Church, where I saw disunity up close and personal in all its ugliness. It was hideous, it was hurtful, there was a group of people within the church who didn't like the new minister, I wasn't the minister, they didn't like the new minister and there was a people, there was a group of people in the church who did like the new minister and the people who didn't like him got together and they opposed him strongly and tried to drive him out. The minister was keen for growth, keen for change, loving and pastoral, but they didn't like the ideas that he had and so they warred against him. I'm not making any judgment of characters on who was right and who was wrong in the situation. That's actually really irrelevant. Um, but what I saw wasn't humility of character necessarily from people uh, like Paul talks about in verse 2 of our passage, rather people digging in their heels, people gathering to their cause against the minister and against those who trusted him. And then when Lara and I joined the church, we didn't realise that there was these two factions uh, in the church, those who liked the minister, those who didn't. And one Sunday morning, this is a funny story so you can laugh, one Sunday morning uh, during his sermon, the minister showed some gymnastics bloopers. He showed a video of gymnastics bloopers and Lara and I are suckers uh, for gymnastics bloopers and Lara in particular. And after this one particular blooper, Lara laughed out loud, but she was the only one in the room who did. She kind of went, aha, oh, and she looked around and the other 50 people weren't laughing because half of them didn't like the minister and half of them were too afraid to laugh in case the other half kind of got up their nose. And so this really awkward silence as these hilarious gymnastic bloopers are on the screen, and we're kind of just dying up the back from watching this thing. It was really awful. People too scared to laugh. Um, it was ugly. I saw an annual general meeting where there was this great divide, but in the end, the people who didn't like the minister, they left. There was a bunch. They left. The minister was left emotionally quite devastated. His family suffered. And six months later, he got kind of a glandular fever thing so bad that he was in bed for a couple of months and um, it was terrible it was awful and I tell you all this um, not to frighten you or to kind of gossip or anything like that but it can happen this unity is possible if we're not careful if we get complacent it can happen it can happen to us it's no surprise that when our Lord Jesus himself prayed in John chapter 17 for his disciples and for the church in the future, for us, he prayed for unity. One of the biggest things he prayed for and asked for from his heavenly Father was unity. Paul teaches us here in this chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, how it is that we can have and enjoy the unity 
that our Lord longs for us to have. He urges us, he commands us, it's not a kind of nice idea if you like, Paul commands us to make every effort to keep and grow the unity that we already have, praise God, but we need to keep working at it. It's so very important that we're united in Jesus for the sake of others in our church and for the sake of our ability to grow as a church, for the sake of our community, for the sake of the gospel, we need to be united in here. So Paul points to three things that we can do as followers of Jesus in order to foster a culture of unity in our church. And we'll see that this unity, of course, springs from the unity in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the first thing we can do is unity depends on the charity of our character, depends on our character. Verse 2, if you want to have a look. Verse 2, Paul urges us to live a life worthy of our calling to follow Jesus. Just as he did, he lists four qualities. They're all fueled by love, not romantic comedy starring Renee Zilliger or Ryan Reynolds type love, but other person-centered love. So verse 2, let's look at Paul's command. It says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So there's four commands there, be humble, gentle, patient, bear with one another in love. Humble and gentle are a couplet, they go hand in hand. What is humility? Can you define humility? I'm not asking you to out loud, but if someone said, can you explain humility? Um, I think it's kind of hard to articulate. Humility is taking your gifts and strengths and talents and using them for the benefit of other people rather than yourself. That's humility. Using your gifts and strengths and talents for the benefit of others is humility. In life and even in church, the people in life and even in church, the people we instinctively like and find it, on, find it easy to get on with are the people who give us the respect we think we deserve in life and even in church. The people we gravitate to are those that respect us the way that we think we deserve to be respected. The people we instinctively dislike and avoid are those who treat us poorly and don't respect us the way we think we ought to be respected. They might be rude or mean or just socially awkward. They might have an intellectual disability, meaning they're incapable of treating us well. Instinctively, we'll avoid them if they don't treat us how we want to be treated. In other words, the people we naturally gravitate towards, even at church, are those who serve us in some way. Think about it. Another word for that is pride. The opposite of humility. Pride is looking for ways in which people can serve you. Humility is looking for ways in which you can serve others. So, in other words, personal vanity is almost always a key factor in our relationships, unfortunately. But it shouldn't be as Christians, as followers of Jesus. If, however, instead of manoeuvring ourselves for the respect of others, which is pride, we give them our respect by recognising all other people's intrinsic God-given worth will promote harmony in God's church. Does that make sense? 
Instead of looking for ways people can serve you, you go around looking for ways you can serve others, we will grow our unity and our harmony and in our church. Humility, looking for ways to serve other people rather than ways other people can serve you. And obvious ways that morning tea, you gravitate towards your friends, the people you know best because you know you get along easy and it's going to be easy for you to hang out with them and chat with them. You're going to have a laugh, you're going to get along, you've got stuff in common, they like tennis, they like the Tigers, I'm going to go talk to them because then we can have a good conversation. They can serve me and I can serve them, and, but I get served, that's important. You gravitate towards them rather than me gravitating towards the guy who can't stand sport or can't stand the things that I like. I go talk to that man or woman instead. That would be humility. That would be pride. Does that make sense? Okay. So, in the church, be humble and also gentle. Seek to give others love and respect, regardless of how they treat you. That's Christian. That's hard. But that's what Paul's calling us to. Because we're so filled, remember last week, with the swimming pool of God's love into ourselves, power, riches. We don't need anything from anyone else. We've got everything we need, so we're free to give to other people. We can do that because we've been empowered and given the strength to do that. The obvious example of someone being humble and humbling themselves was our Lord Jesus, who demonstrated Incredible humility in the upper room by washing his disciples' feet. The Lord of the universe, creator of the universe, always who had incredible power, of course, always used it for the benefit of others. And he bent down and he washed their feet. My understanding is he pretty much stripped naked and wrapped a towel around himself and then went around with this bowl of water washing the disciples' feet. Now, I think to wash all your feet would be gross even today. In those days, they wore sandals. Garbage collection and sewage wasn't quite what it is today. So who knows what they're walking around in. So gross, gross, double gross. But Jesus did it. He, he used his infinite strength always and only for the good of others. And in doing so, demonstrated to them how they ought to live using their strength and power for the good of others as well, and demonstrated to us how we ought to live, being willing to do anything in order to love others. When we do this, we find unity. Be completely humble and gentle. Men in particular, use your strength for the good of others and with gentleness. Not, oh, I'm going to help you out, I suppose. There you go, I served you, go away. That's not humble and gentle. As we humbly serve others, we serve willingly and with gentleness. I remember a mate from church years back, his name was Owen Polly Lank. We called him Polly. He was huge, he was a concreter. When you shook his hand, you just knew he could crush every bone in your hand if he wanted to. He was so strong, Um, but he never did. When you shook your hand, it was controlled strength, right? Uh, men in particular, women as well, gentleness, that's humility and gentleness, that's controlled strength for the good of others. When you humble yourself and serve others, be gentle with them. Paul says next to be patient 
bearing with one another. This is an interesting one. Be patient with one another means put away your pride and your self-assertion and your self-seekingness and be patient with each other's differences. Bear with one another's differences. As new people join our church, I pray, and it grows, the diversity of personalities will only increase. And we're going to see that's a strength that promotes unity. Diversity promotes unity if we love one another. And we're going to, there's going to be more and more people who are different to us so we need to be patient with one another more and more. But you can't actually be patient and bear with one another if you avoid one another because you don't have the opportunity to bear with each other. In order to bear with one another, you've got to rub up against each other, right? You've got to do life together. You've got to create opportunity for tension and conflict, right? You've got to be that close to one another there's opportunity for conflict. There's opportunity for division. There's opportunity for bearing with one another in patience and love. Like growth groups. Growth groups are a classic and brilliant and awesome example of an opportunity to come together a couple of hours every single week in someone's home, close proximity, do a bit of food, pray together, get to know one another, bear with one another as your personalities rub up against each other You've got an opportunity to love and be patient. If I avoid you, I never have an opportunity to be patient or bear with you at all. Does that make sense? So in order to bear with one another, we actually got to do life together in proximity. Um, I think we thought bearing with one another just means being gentle when we kind of rebuke someone. That's not what it says. Bearing with one another, engage with one another, do life together but being loving and accepting and servant-hearted at the same time. All right. Unity, so that's our character. Unity arises from the unity of our God, we see there in the passage. Our unity comes from the unity in the Godhead, in the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's given from God in Christ. We have it already from God. Our job is to keep it and promote it. The result of the Holy Spirit's work is unity or a bond of peace. Look at verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you're called to one hope when you're called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So firstly, we're united brothers and sisters because we're part of the one body, the church. Christ is the head, upheld by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we're brothers and sisters united because our hope is in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. All our hope is in our one Lord and Saviour, Jesus, in whom we have faith and have been baptised spiritually by the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, if you're a Christian and you've never been baptised and you'd like to be baptised, come and talk to me. I'd love to baptise you. That would be cool. Thirdly, we're united because we're all part of the one family of God, who is the God of all things, over all things, and who sustains all things and all people in the church. God has existed for all time, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and now calls us into relationship with him through the Son, with the Holy Spirit. It's this unity in the Godhead from which our unity arises. Try to get your head around this. When you put your trust in Jesus, you're united to Christ. And when you become united to Christ, 
you are drawn into the eternal Godhead spiritually, united with Father, Holy Spirit and Christ eternally. The eternal Godhead who's existed forever will exist forever. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're drawn into that relationship, that Trinity, that Godhead. Isn't that incredible? You're there, seated in the heavenly realms, it says in Ephesians. Because of this unity which you have and enjoy, make every effort to keep it. Paul, keep in mind, writes to a church that has Jew and Gentile united together for the first time in history, seated at the table together. It's really important that these people who are once sworn enemies work hard to keep the unity of faith, the bond of peace, their newfound unity. But the same goes for us as well. We're different. We have different ethnic backgrounds, different personalities, different ideals and different ideas. We too need to work hard, friends, all of us, every one of you, needs to make every effort to keep the unity that we have. We are diverse, but in Christ we are unified together. Our unity in the Godhead can't be shaken, it can't be split, yet we are different from one another. If we don't make effort, divisions can arise in our midst. Let there not be divisions among us next year or the next decade or the next century. After that, it's someone else's problem because I'll be gone. (laughs) Let there not even be cliques among us, groups within the group. Is it okay to have friends that you're closer to than others at church? Yes. Is it okay to be exclusive with that friendship so no one else can bust in? No. Let there not be cliques in our church. If you're chatting after church with your friends, draw other people in. If they're new, if they're standing on their own, be on the lookout for people who you can draw into your conversation circle. If you're catching up with friends from church after church, well, think about who else you could have along to join you for lunch from church or for dinner. Invite new people you haven't invited before. How are we going? I set a challenge about three weeks ago to invite someone to your house for lunch from church who you've never had over before. Who's done that? Look at that. Well done, Sullos. <laughs> That's awesome. The challenge is still there. There's three Sundays to go, including this one, to have someone over to your home for lunch from church who you've never had to your home before. I know we're tired. It's the end of the year. But we have, remember, Christ's strength at work within us. We're filled to the, with the fullness of God. So draw upon God's strength and Invite someone over who you've never had over before. Make every effort, every effort, says our Apostle Paul, to live out the wonderful unity that has been bestowed upon us from on high. Friends, if you've been in this church for a bit, you've been hanging around for a while, you've been coming along and you don't yet feel connected in, please talk to me. Please reach out. Grab me a morning tea, fill out an I'm here today form. Let me know. We want everyone in this church to feel connected in to this church, to feel loved, to feel part of this church, to feel really comfy. You know that pair of slippers, you've had them for three or four years at least, and you put them on, you're like, 
We want everyone to feel like that when they arrive on Sunday morning in church. You just slip in and you, ah, I'm here and I'm part of things and I'm comfortable. That's what we want for everyone here at church. Thirdly, unity is actually enriched by the diversity of our gifts. Paul says the church is thoroughly enriched by diversity. That's unusual, isn't it? Kind of pop culture wisdom will say, find people who are like-minded and get together with them and then you'll know. Paul says, the Bible says, God says, diversity promotes unity. And so we come to these frightfully tricky verses in chapter, in verses 7 to 12 in our passage. We've just learned we're all united by God, but our unity, says Paul, is contrasted and enhanced by our diversity of giftedness. We're united, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, this can't be talking about saving grace. We've all been given the same saving grace from Christ. What's view here is serving grace. What's on view here is serving grace. We've all been given different gifts and abilities and ways to serve, opportunities as well to serve. I love the hustle and bustle of Sunday mornings between 8 and 9.30 when all these people turn up and people unpack the trailer and set up the stage and the musicians get to work and they do their thing that I can't do and people set up the chairs and the kids' church team arrive and, you know, all this diversity of gifts goes to work on a Sunday morning and it's beautiful. I love seeing the small army of people working together with their diversity of gifts on a Sunday morning. (coughs) Unity in the church is a result of God's saving grace, but the rich diversity in the church is the result of God's serving grace. Now, what does verse 8 mean then? And why is it different from the psalm that it's quoting? Did you know it was? So, verse 8 says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. But Psalm 68 says, When you ascended on high, you took many captives, you received gifts from people. Hmm, curious. Now, who is the he in verse 8? Well, clearly in Psalm 68, the you is God. God ascended on high, God took many captives, God received gifts from his people when God conquered Egypt, rescued his people. The psalm speaks of him ascending to his holy place to dwell. Similarly then, after his ascension from the dead, Jesus, after 40 days and appearing to 500 people, at least, ascended into heaven as Lord of all. Aha. And we learned that in chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. So the subject is God in the psalm and the subject is Jesus in the New Testament in Ephesians. That make sense? Okay, who are the captives then? Is it talking about Satan and his cronies conquered when God Christ died on the cross? Well, that does make sense. He took Satan captive. God defeated the Egyptians. Hmm, but then... The Egyptians and the evil powers of the world aren't really described as prisoners in the Bible so much as judged and destroyed and defeated, right? So who are the captives that it's talking about then? Maybe the next bit can help us. Jesus gives gifts to his people, but in Psalm 68, the gifts are given to God. 
When you win a victory as a king, you take, you receive tribute from the conquered nation. You take stuff with you, even people with you. And usually there's a parade through the city back home with the captives kind of at the back, walking at the back of the procession. There's usually tribute in the form of treasures, livestock, and then the slaves. A good king then distributes those gifts among his people. So in the Old Testament, God receives the gift of this captive people. In the New Testament, Jesus seems to give away these people as a gift to the rest of his people. So maybe the captive people are the gift. Jesus has won us through his death on the cross and his resurrection and given people, he's given, I'll find it in the passage here, he's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers as a gift to the church to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. So it makes most sense the captives are God's people. We're the captives and the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, in particular, are the captives in view here, given to the church for equipping the saints for good works so that the church can be built up. Jesus descended to earth, died on the cross, rescued, or in other words, took a people captive for himself, ascended on high as Lord and King and gave us Paul the prophets, the teachers, evangelists as a gift and he gives us one another as a gift to one another. Diversity of people, diversity of giftedness. You are a gift to one another. You're not insignificant. You don't have no part to play in God's church. You are important and you have particular uh, serving gifts given to you by God for the benefit of others in the church. Whatever gift it is you have, singing, encouraging, coffee making, evangelizing, preaching, teaching, accounting, sweeping, stage building, there's hundreds and hundreds of gifts. Whatever gift it is you have, work it out And then work out how you can use your gift for the benefit of your church. And if you're not sure how, please come and have a conversation with me. The question is not, can you serve your church? The question is, how can you serve your church? Fourthly and finally, unity demands (coughs) the maturity of our growth. Christians are called to maturity, to taking Christian living and speaking seriously. Paul draws a comparison between a child and a small boat tossed at sea. (coughs) We're on the home stretch, this is important. A child's like a small boat in a stormy sea. A child is easily tossed back and forth by their friends, by television, by the internet, by any wind of teaching that they hear. Hence, children need parents and they need adults to guide them and to protect them in life. Parents, I want to say to you, very seriously, that our kids are in serious danger from social media and from the internet in general. There are influencers on social media, predators, let's call them, who are out there to try to persuade our children 
into believing certain ideals and they're very good at what they do. And we can be too busy with work and with life and with stuff to even notice what our kids are looking at and who they're talking to and what they're taking in and what they're watching. And we need to be really vigilant about what they're seeing. We can't cut them off from the world. I mean, you can. You can kind of move to the sticks and kind of build a farm and just (whistles) homeschool and cut them off from the world. You could do that. Probably won't do that. And I don't think it'd be godly. They're going to be engaging with the internet and social media. At what age is obviously a big question and needs wisdom and conversation with other Christians, parents. But we need to be vigilant and know what it is that they're looking at who they're being influenced by, what they're listening to, what games they're playing, because it's all influencing them and all impacting them, and they are like a small boat in a stormy sea. And we can be too, if we're not careful, can't we? Be like a small boat in a stormy sea, tossed back and forth by every wind of teaching, particularly when we get tired and distracted and we don't read our Bible and we maybe we skip church because... We can't get to it this week and growth group's getting a bit hard and it's the holidays and next thing you know, we're watching all this stuff and taking it all in and being influenced all the time. Nothing's neutral that you watch and you listen to. It all has an influence on you one way or the other. Paul says, guard against false teaching. Be committed to speaking the truth in love to one another. Look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who's the head, that is Christ, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows, builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I think we think speaking the truth in love means rebuking someone nicely. That might be the half percent of the time. Most of the time, Paul's talking about committing to encouraging one another from the Bible, using the truths of the gospel to encourage one another, speaking Christian truths to one another, certainly from the pulpit, but also at morning tea, in growth group, via text messages and phone calls and Facebook messages. We speak the truth. We're committed to speaking the truth of the Bible. We make an effort to do that for the sake of one another so that we won't be tossed back and forth forth by every wind of teaching, particularly now that we've got six weeks of school holidays and growth groups are stopping and we're just not going to see each other as much. We need to make more effort to encourage one another with God's word, to serve one another in that way. The primary way that we love one another is to speak the truth of the Bible to one another. In order to do that, you need to know the truth of the Bible, right? So we need to be reading our Bibles, knowing God's Word, studying God's Word for ourselves so that we can encourage one another. And this is a command from God through Paul in Ephesians. And I can't help but come back again to growth groups. Growth groups, please keep encouraging one another over the break. If you're not in a growth group, let me know and we'll get one into one, you into one soon next year because they're great. Finally, let me wrap up. This is Jesus' prayer that I alluded to earlier in John 17. Kitty, you better go. Thanks. 
Is it you and Sarah? Hammond, okay. Thanks, guys. They're going to man the stall and woman the stall uh, in the town centre. Right before he was arrested, tried and crucified, Jesus had you in mind and prayed for you. Isn't that cool? And he prayed this. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples that are with him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See what happens when we unite to one another the world sees Jesus in us. Isn't that great? As we commit to church and putting others before ourselves, we become a Christ-like community, a city on a hill, we are on a hill, a city on a hill for the whole world to see, to reflect Christ into the community. As we think, what are my gifts? How can I use my gifts to enhance my church? We create a Christ-like community. As we engage with one another, care for one another, put others' needs before our own, we create a church and a culture that's a joy to be a part of, that you love being a part of, and that people come into and they're like, oh, wow, this place is great. How do I become a part of this place? Because it's really awesome and loving and united. Make every effort to keep the unity in Jesus that we already have and to experience the love of Jesus amongst one another. This is taking place already. May it continue to take place more and more. And I want to throw open the doors to our Heavenly Father's throne room now and pray and I ask you to join me. Let's pray with confidence and boldness that we learned about last week. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you so much for the incredible blessing it is to enjoy the unity that you have enjoyed with your Son, with the Holy Spirit forever. Thank you that through faith in Jesus we are called into the unity that you enjoy and given as a church the unity that you enjoy. And Lord, we pray and ask that you work in us by your Holy Spirit to make effort to be proactive to consciously try to be unified by serving others, by loving others, by not trying to work out how people can serve us, but rather trying to work out how we can serve others, that we might enjoy and um, experience the love and the unity that you have always enjoyed. We pray that as we're unified as you are, that the community might see Christ in us, the community abroad might see Christ in us, that they might long to join us and honour and praise your name as it deserves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a reminder of the challenge to have someone over for lunch that you haven't had over before, or at morning tea today, chat to someone 
who you haven't chatted to except for for or at least haven't chatted to for quite a long time. There you go, there's a challenge. All right. <laughs>